So you've got a, you know, a very small minority that actually have gone past understanding this stuff's important to actually having um, a process for strategically managing these assets. Hey everyone, today we're talking with David Taylor from Brand Gym about measuring, creating and amplifying distinctive brand assets. I think it's a very interesting topic and not a lot of people go into the weeds of how to actually measure it, create it, update it, manage it, um, and then amplify it. So buckle up and let's talk branding. I'm David Taylor. I am founder and group managing partner of a company called The Brand Gym. Uh, we're a team of uh, senior brand coaches uh, working around the world. Uh, and I've been running that, running that business for uh, 22 years now. Um, and we work with uh, leading companies and teams for everything from banking to biscuits uh, to, to, to beer uh, on helping them create uh, brand-led growth. Um, that's what I spend my time, uh, time doing, working on brand growth projects. Um, and also running Brand Gym Academy, uh, which is our online uh, training platform uh, where we do either open programs or programs for specific uh, clients. Cool. All the industries with a B, banking, well, only with beers. A B. <laughs> <laughs> That's your, your niche uh, right there. Niche. <laughs> Specifically, I wanted to talk to you about um, this uh, interesting research paper that uh, you guys brought out. It was on distinctive brand assets and harnessing their full potential for growth. Maybe just uh, like a quick intro, like why the, the paper came about and, and like sure. what is it about in a nutshell? Sure. So I think um, this whole concept of distinctive uh, brand assets is a really hot topic. Uh, you read about it a lot. A lot of people talking about it on LinkedIn. Uh, I first actually saw this uh, when I was doing uh, sort of branding work for Mars about 15 years ago. And there was a company with a guy called Byron Sharp who was sort of starting to do work uh, <laughs> with Mars. So they were really early uh, onto this. Um, and then Coca-Cola. Um, and then it's sort of gone, you know, it's gone way into the mainstream uh you know with the work byron sharp's book how brands grow um and then uh, his colleague jenny uh who's also written on the topic so a lot of people are talking about it and a lot of clients are talking to us about it uh what really prompted the the research though was what i'd call like the implement the implementation gap you know uh there's a huge disconnect mm. between everyone talking about what a great concept it is um, and how important it is. Uh, so, for example, in that research that we did, you know, every single marketing director agreed that distinctive brand assets are important, you know, 100%. Um, and yet hmm. other research that was done um, uh, by JKR and Ipsos showed that only 15% of brand assets are truly distinctive. So you know, everyone, everyone, everyone agrees that it's a great thing. And yet there's a, there's a huge disconnect between actually how many people are actually delivering it. So that's why that was really our sort of, it's like a healthy food. 
<laughs> exactly. Yeah, five, five, you know, five fruit and veg a day, you know, or, you know, uh, 30, a thousand, 10,000 steps a day. I mean, um, so that was really, that was how we thought uh, as the brand gym, there was an opportunity to do something a bit distinctive <laughs> because everybody, I say, everyone is <laughs> talking about it. There's loads of stuff out there, loads of examples, but it was this, um, it was this disconnect between what marketeers think they should do and know they should do and actually what they're doing. And that's really what prompted the, the research was to try and investigate in a bit more detail, why have we got this gap, this implement, implementation gap? And then practically, what could we consider as ways of trying to close that gap and drive up that number? So to help, uh, to help, help clients, to help companies, you know, really fully harness the potential of distinctive brand assets to to drive business growth. Yeah, and I think that's super important because, like as you said, I I think uh, it's like everybody agrees, but the like in the companies I've been working for, which aren't like the top level mm. FMCG brands, but rather a bit smaller. Yes, it's like yeah, yeah, of course, but like how and and why and, yeah. and and when and like it's not that easy to do um it looks very easy on the surface but it is and like may, maybe what are some of the barriers to actually yeah. like working on these these distinctive assets or distinctiveness yeah. in general and it's interesting just to just to briefly pick up on just to quickly pick up on what you've talked about so clearly there are i think there's probably two broad categories of, of companies you've got probably maybe you've got maybe more smaller medium-sized businesses entrepreneurial businesses uh who maybe haven't been fully exposed you know to the concepts so don't actually mm. know maybe fully know about the concept of distinctive brand assets you know we still when i do either consulting projects or or training and you ask people you know who's aware of the concept of how brands grow and distinctive brand assets I mean, probably mo most people now know, you know, whereas go back 10 years and it was a one or two people. Uh, so I think that that's like mm -hmm. a, there's a, there's the first quite the first step is like a knowledge gap, which is maybe for, for companies that don't have the benefit, you know, of the training of a Unilever or a Proctor, uh, you know, maybe they've not been exposed to the concepts, but then what's, <laughs> what's really intrigues me are bigger, smarter, sophisticated businesses who are just getting it wrong. So they've, they've read the book, right? They've read the red book, the bright red Byron book. Uh, you know, they've listened to the, listened to the podcast. They've, they've watched LinkedIn and yet people still make these, you know, what seem to, to, to me to be, uh, you know, questionable decisions. Yeah. So I, I wrote a blog recently about, um, Survey Monkey. And I mean, Survey Monkey has been around for 20 years. It's a, I'm, I'm, mm. I don't know the exact tenor. I'm guessing it's, you know, in the, in the hundreds of millions, if not the billions. And it's, <laughs> it's a company that gets paid to do research <laughs> and they researched a lot, <laughs> the survey monkey name and visual identity and found it was highly distinctive, had a lot of positive attributes. And yet they, they ditched that asset as their company name and changed it to Momentive. So that's not a small company. Mm -hmm. That's a big business, which is a research company. So it's a little bit, you know, the uh, the French saying, you know, the cobbler's cobbler's children are the worst shoed. You know, I mean, everyone has the, the, their own version of it, probably. You know, 
You know, the l'enfant de cordonnier est toujours le plus mal chaussé. It means that you know, the cobbler's child is the worst shoe. So that, that, that's what I think is really, wow. I mean, what's going on there? Um, and so I think the first, so step, you know, the, the base level is, is a knowledge gap. We just didn't know this was important. Um, and still there are some companies, businesses out there where that's the issue. But then when you get into the people we talked to, 100% said it was important. Right. So everybody who we talked to, because we were mm. talking to, you know, CMOs and marketing directors, they all knew it was important. And what we uncovered, what we found was, uh, I mean, the headline problem, which given the importance of brand assets is pretty <laughs> astounding, is that only a third had in place a process for strategically managing their brand assets. So you've got a you know a very small minority that actually have gone past understanding this stuff's important to actually having um, a process for strategically managing these assets, and the sort of the the, the knock-on effect from that lack of proper strategic uh, approach, uh, we found there were there were three main uh, sort of negative side effects from that. Uh, The first is uh, subjectivity, you know, so, uh, you know, I, I, I think we should, I think we need to change this slogan, you know, or I don't like that design or, you know, so subjectivity, you know, in terms of, uh, it's what I call branding as a beauty contest. <laughs> you know, everyone's sitting around, yeah. like it. I don't like that design or I don't like that slogan or whatever. Uh, I yeah. And, and probably even yeah. like a new C, uh, short CMO tangers, exactly. like, coming in as well uh, exactly, onto yeah. like i want to do something cool and new here <laughs> absolutely so the, 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 novel, the novelty you know the obsession with novelty you know which is still a which is a i mean marketers you know and brand guy guys and ladies you know the job is to be creative right you know the job the job is to be creative mm. the, the 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 shadow of that is that it can lead to an obsession with novelty <laughs> so uh And yep. as you said, and that's actually the second issue, a bit linked to the subjectivity point is the change, you know, so change junkies is the second issue. <laughs> and then the, the, the third one is um, still not really mastering the art of uh, amplifying uh, these assets across channels. Uh, so how you orchestrate agencies and align them and engage them in order to really fully maximize the potential. So not just have it in your logo, in your color of your brand, but how you really start to amplify the assets um, across multiple channels, uh, you know, so that they're really brought to life. Um, this week's Brand Gym blog post that um, came out uh, at the weekend was on Verve Clicquot. So they have this campaign, uh, which is Good Morning Sunshine. So they have this beautiful uh, yellow or orange, yellowy orange color, you know, in the label, which they call the, they call it uh, the, the solaire, they call it. So it's not just orange, it's solaire, you know. So straight away, I mean, they're describing the asset in a very evocative way, you know, solaire. And then the way it's brought to life in the communication, uh, the way they brought it to life, they're, they're celebrating their uh, anniversary and they created like a, 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 an exhibition that's going around uh, from, Tokyo, Los Angeles, London, they have a Solaire cafe in there, you know, so they're, they're really, 
amplifying, orchestrating, animating the brand asset across across channels, and that's 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 the third that's the third thing that's missing alongside the problem of subjectivity. And as you said, you know, linked to that is the the new broom syndrome. You know, the sort of the new the new mm-hmm. CMO syndrome. And and we always I always tell the joke. If you imagine imagine if you, for example, you you know, Steph, you were you were hired as the new you know uh, head of uh, manufacturing you know, for a, for a, for a company, you went for a bit of a career change <laughs> and you went into manufacturing and you <laughs> arrived and said, you know, I don't like that. Uh, you, know, you see the big factory out the window. I don't like that factory. You know, I think we should, I think we should destroy it and build a new one. It's going to cost about five, $10 million, but I don't, I think we should build. And everyone goes, yeah, yeah. He's the new guy. You know, he's the head of operations. You know, great idea. Go on, Steph, you know, knock it down, build it. Whereas if you're a CMO and you said, I don't like the slogan, I want to change it and I want to change the agency, then everyone would go, yeah, okay, you know, fine. He's, he, you know, he or she's the new, you know, CMO. They know what they're doing, you know. So it, 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 to, to, to my view, you know, distinctive brand assets are just as valuable or just as important as the physical assets, you know, if not more important, you know, mm-hmm. uh, you know, in terms of buildings, machinery, uh, and they should be, you know, treated with the same, respect and degree of uh, professionalism you know and how they in how they and how they're managed yeah and i think i mean that's a, that's so interesting what you said i mean because i think a lot of times indeed like these things like visual elements or or like your logo or your even typography or whatever kind yeah. of codes that you're using are like not seen as the most valuable assets uh well maybe they aren't always but in some cases they are definitely a lot more valuable than than we think about it and it's like oh it's just uh the coloring in it's the positioning that matters and stuff but actually a lot of times it is the other way around and i think one of the things um well there's there's of course you 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 already mentioned it in study you have create measure and amplify uh the three pillars of like uh, working with assets and the first one I guess is like when you are let's say brand manager listening to this or somebody else an owner business owner listening to this the first part is of course understanding how well your current assets if yeah. you have any are doing so like take us a bit through that step of measuring brand assets sure so I mean if, if maybe maybe talk about that and, and you know using a, a an example uh, you know, from a from a brand gym project, just to sort of bring it to life a little bit. So, uh, working with uh, WD WD forty, uh, you know, the the mm. sort of the, the lubricant uh, spray. Um, they uh, they have uh, they've created um, uh, a premium uh, sub brand uh, platform called WD forty Specialist. So. What they call multi multi use product is the is the blue uh, the blue and yellow can with the red top with the with the sh- with the shield, so that's the original. It's still the, the the majority of the business, but they launched a premium sub brand called Specialist that would target. Uh, you know, uh, here we go. Oh, thank you. So, uh, so you've got that. That's the Specialist range there. So you can see. So you just hold on that page actually there, and you look in the right hand window. Uh, you've got far right window you've got the one with the yellow top so when they launched uh mm. so yeah. when they uh when they launched uh specialist uh the range they actually uh in order to try and make it distinctive from the multi-use products they used the yellow cap um and they used the black mm-hmm. 
um, in order to try and make it distinctive. Uh, so actually, what uh, WD40 did, they they uh, they invested in um, what we call iconic asset tracking. So we we partnered with one of our insight partners to do a, 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 an iconic asset tracking study, like you say. So step one, actually, you know, measure what you've got, right? Um, and as you can see there in the research, uh, only less than half of people are measuring their assets quantitatively. Hmm. Okay. When WD40 did this, they found out that the um, the blue um, the blue and yellow uh, on the core product and the red top were absolutely essential. And in fact, the the blue and yellow, if you take off all the uh, so the way that asset tracking is, you know, you you take off all the wording and the detail. You just explore the assets. And when they did that, they found out that actually uh, the yellow shield and the red top uh, combined made that more iconic than co the Coca-Cola contour bottle. So, you know, ph a phenomenal <laughs> result. So actually that specialist product you can see with the yellow top and the black, you know, they were underutilizing, they weren't amplified, they weren't activating those brand assets. So they redesigned the specialist range to actually use the red top use the yellow shield but to introduce it's a more uh premium looking blue compared to the core product so it's like a slightly deeper more metallic blue uh you've got that little symbol you can see there that one is about a penetrant that's used to unlock things you've got a little visualization of a, of a sort of spanner um and actually what that did is importantly it's not just you know a beauty contest like we like it it actually significantly mm -hmm. increased speed of identification on shelf in quant testing. So they tested the old and the new, and the key thing was it actually increased the speed of identification at shelf. And we know that that's a critical role of brand assets, isn't it? You know, getting ourselves chosen at the shelf when people have a limited amount of time. So that was a really fantastic example where actually measuring what we've got as step one was absolutely vital to identify the assets that we've got to keep and, and amplify. And as I said, it's, it's less than half of the company. So remember this is the, every single one of these CMOs said that it was important. And yet only half of them <laughs> got any measurement of these of these assets. Uh, so so that's that's absolutely step one is is doing um, doing proper quantitative research. And this is not, this is not, I was at a client last week, they said, oh yeah, we do that, you know, we. Every time we do a communication test, you know, we, we, we check if they saw any assets. That's not what we're talking about. What we're talking about is actually deconstructing your, your visual design uh, and your mm -hmm. marketing and actually exploring individually the different assets, which could be like you mentioned, Steph, you mentioned the typeface, like I've got the jam behind me, you know, my, one of my favorite bands, you've got the, you've got there, you know, the way the jam is written, you know, uh, or it could be the use of black and white, or it could be the, the tie of the band, you know, or the haircuts or the sunglasses, if it was, if I was doing it on the jam, um, you know, it's deconstruct, deconstructing those different assets and then exposing them quickly to people. And then what they do is, uh, typically you measure two things. You measure, um, uh, identification and attribution. So, uh, you know, do I recognize it as step one? There's question one, recognition. And then rec and then a question two is, do I correctly attribute it to the right brand? Uh, and that's why, how you get your, hmm. you know, your two by your two classic, you know, three by three matrix. And what you're looking for obviously is, you know, assets which are 
recognized, but then accurately attributed to the correct brand. So um, in the research paper you were yeah. just showing, you've got Red Bull, you know, is, is off the scale, right? I mean, they've just got uh, the colors, they've got the symbol of the bull, uh, they've got uh, the style of advertising that they do. You know, they're, they're, they've got a highly populated, uh, there you go. So, I mean, look at that. I mean, that's just, you look at the can, you look at the slogan, you look at the advertising style, uh, you know, probably one of the most, you know, distinctive, distinctive brands that you can imagine. Um, so that's the sort of, that's what you get. And this was done with a partner agency called Distinctive Bat. So they're the guys who partnered on the research paper. So that's the sort of output you would get for your brand if you do one of these uh, distinctive asset tests, you know, and then you, you mm -hmm. can, um, that's your base, that's your base point, you know, in terms of really understanding what you've got yep. in terms of assets. Yeah. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's very interesting for me, like coming from a, like a world of branding agencies and, mm. and like working together with clients. It's, it's interesting to me how none of this ever almost like to my knowledge happens in a lot of branding agencies because there we take a look at assets like basically usually it's like you go from what is the strategy like why are we here what yeah. is the personality of the brand and then yeah. does it still match what we have and then you basically right. usually it gets changed totally because yeah. it matches better what you how you want to be positioned but this way of like looking at it like strategically based on data and then informing it yeah. to design i think is something that is really lacking hard in yeah. in the branding industry and and yeah it's something i've been hammering on but um maybe um just one one question i think that listeners might have listeners or viewers is um like at what scale does this type of research become like interesting valuable to do because i can imagine maybe at a certain scale it's just not maybe you'll just see no zero recognition and oh, zero see, attribution yeah. because you're i think that's a good point so i think you know if you're obviously if you're if you're uh if you're a brand that lacks massive budget, you know, big significant budget, or it's a brand new brand, or it's a brand that hasn't been communicated very much, you know, it's, it's true that you, you know, you, you, you might not want to spend them. You might want to spend the money on building the assets rather than confirming you haven't got any. Mm. So, uh, <laughs> that's a, that's, that's a valid point. I mean, I think I mean, Every time I work with people either on a project or training, people always say, have a high, you know, you've got to have a, a hypothesis, you know, before you do the research. So use your, mm -hmm. use your judgment and you're right. It's a good, it's a good challenge to say, look, before you go and spend the money, I mean, do you think you've got any distinctive assets? And if the answer is no, then maybe spend a bit more time building some before you do them. Um, it, unless you think, for example, cause what you do is you saw in the uh, the little visual you put up, you saw the Red Bull one. Obviously, what you would also do is you do the competition. So, yeah. um, and, and a recent, another blog post was on uh, B2B branding, um, and it showed that the, the challenge there is even bigger. You know, there's even less distinctiveness mm -hmm. in terms of assets. The benefit of doing it and looking at some of the, the competi competitors might be just to show the business, look, we've got very little, we're, bottom left-hand corner, but there are some brands in our category that are doing better and they've got much stronger assets. You know, that might be the, 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 mm. the rationale why you would still go ahead and do that. Um, and yeah. to be honest, the, 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 the cost of this, 
has also, I think, is is come down. You know, so I mean, it's not yeah. it's not cheap, but I mean, you, you you can be doing this for ten to fifteen thousand pounds, whereas you know, um, maybe five years ago, it would have cost you thirty, forty thousand pounds. So, you know, with mm. with online technology, with online um, testing techniques, you know, the companies are getting smarter. Insight agencies are getting a lot smarter. There are new people on the block offering that service. You know, whereas before there were very few. So, you know, you, you, you could, uh, mm. we've had clients do this on branching projects for 10 to 15,000 pounds, you know, not a hundred thousand pounds. So. Yeah. Yeah. In Makes sense. Cases, yeah. And I think more, as you said, no, exactly. But I think it's, as you said, like it's the same with uh, brand tracking in, in general. Like I was talking to Jenny Romaniuk about this. Um, and yes. she also mentioned like, even if you have zero awareness, uh, you can learn a lot from understanding how much your competitors are yeah. and how they are evolving. And basically, you need a baseline. So at some point, yes. at some scale, it, it is interesting regardless of the scale. Absolutely, yeah. So, so I totally agree with that. I think one of the things uh, that I'm like this the tracking there has been i mean jenny has also had some framework on it there are some companies it's quite clear how you could like measure it i guess then i think the the next big question is of course like when it comes to creating brand assets there's a big like uh, it's a it's a bit of a black hole a magic uh, place where these <laughs> things happen like uh for I, I, what I know is that like a lot of assets historically were created by advertising agencies, like in wow. a specific campaign, and then they kind of made their way into the brand. But I'm I'm not even aware of like lots of agencies that do specifically this. Like we create assets based on uh, strategic research. So when it comes to creating, like first off, how do you identify what you need to create, what type of assets, and then like how you how do you go from there? Yeah. So I think that's a great, it's a, it's a good question. And it's the, in a way, it's the hardest, is the hardest challenge is if you do your measurement and you haven't, you know, you haven't got, you haven't got any assets. That's, that, that's right. That's <laughs> the hardest uh, situation. And I think you're right. I think it's still relatively early days in terms of that creation process. You know, I think managing them, if you're yeah. lucky and you've actually got them and you need to amplify them, you know, we can maybe talk a little about that in, in a second. That, 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 that's one of the, the challenges. That's one of the three things I mentioned. You know, companies are not effectively amplifying the assets they have when they've got them across channels. But if you go to the, um, the, the, the question before about actual creation, um, I think a, a, a couple of things that I've seen on, on projects, on real-life branching projects that work well is, first of all, is... Um, cross-agency collaboration. So like you said, I mean, mm -hmm. you might have an advertising asset that you then try somehow to bleed into your, into, your, into your design, or you've got a design asset and you're trying to bleed it, you know, trying to get it into the comms. What I've seen work really well is when you, um, is when you have that cross-agency collaboration and you don't, you don't necessarily know where the, the seed comes from. So uh, for example, uh, I worked on a brand called Covent Garden Soup. So they're a soup company uh, owned by Hayne Daniels. Um, and it was actually the design agency who came up with the idea of uh, the market and the, the basket. So the idea was a bit like, you know, a basket of, uh, a basket of uh, fruit and veg that you'd get, you'd pick up in a market. So they actually introduced that device as a design concept but then the, the comms agency picked up on it and actually then actually uh, they 
picked up on that concept of the fruit and vegetable basket and the market and then was able to visualize that um, in communication because they were sort of collaborating. Um, and then actually goes full circle because you can imagine at the end of, a of the commercial, you know, you can freeze onto the, uh, the basket of fruit and veg for that particular product, like carrot and coriander, and it would morph into the pack design and then someone picks the pack up. So I think that cross-agency collaboration, cross-fertilization, you know, having, uh, trying to manage a situation where uh, there's no protection of the asset within that agency silo. Do you know what I mean? Like, no, you don't want people saying, well, oh, that's ours. You know, we created that. You've got to have that openness. I think that that's helpful. And then the other thing, uh, the other thing I've seen that works well, which again, a bit like the Covent Garden example is, you know, is really brand archeology, span you know, digging into the brand, you know, digging the brand up, you know, uh, doing some immersive insight with the consumer, you know, getting into the brand world. And in that case, you know, Covent Garden is a, a market, you know, in London, it's a market very famous for fruit and vegetables. So the idea of the vibrancy and color of the marketplace of the market was really helpful in terms of a springboard for creating visual assets, you know, so, so bringing to life the brand world and visualizing it and, and, and getting from that, you know, uh, sim symbols, you know, symbolism that, uh, that, that really is evocative of the brand, uh, I think is, uh, is really good of a, of a, of a sort of a, a wooden, you know, a wooden basket. And that's also mm, the crate. Yeah. A crate, a crate. Yeah, exactly. Uh, yeah, you go. That's yeah. a different version of it. So that idea of like that prey of abundant overflowing fruit and veg, you know, as a visual device. And as I said, that can then be, uh, dramatized, uh, you know, in the communication as, as well. So digging into the brand world, immersing yourself in it, looking at the symbolism, looking at what it evokes, um, and doing that in a cross agency way where, you know, things can, ideas can cross fertilize. And that's how you then, you know, you hit, you hit on that uh, second objective, which is uh, cross channel uh, amplification. So yep. a bit like the Verve example, the Verve Clico, you know, I mean, the Solaire label is there, the orangey yellow, but it's also in their events, you know, it's in their communication and in their just, you know, fantastic um, secondary packaging. So I don't know if you if, you, if you're doing yeah, searches again. You know, if you just do uh, Verve Clico uh, secondary packaging or Verve Clico uh, ice bucket, uh, you'll 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 have some fantastic stuff to 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 show. Yeah. So look, you just look at those. You know, all this the secondary packaging that do, and they do highly functional uh, secondary packaging. So they do like cardboard boxes that turn into ice boxes. You can see the one, some of the ones there. They unfold almost like a flower. Yeah. Um, so that's an example where you've really got the, you know, the, there you go, the neoprene, you know, the, the neoprene, uh, ice jacket, you know, so that's where that's not just like you said before, something seen as being, oh, we've got the orange color, you know, it, it it's, you know, it, mm. it's, it's incredibly important and in the way that they've amplified that through, um, you know, communication, secondary packaging events. And it's doing that beautiful job of driving a uh, uh, recognition, which we know in a sort of increasingly busy world is, is super important, but also it's doing that job of uh, triggering uh, positive associations. You know, it's like the key 
it's like the key that just unlocks all that positive imagery around bright, vibrant, sunshine, positivity, enjoying life, refreshing, you know. <laughs> so I think it's just a beautiful. Yeah, I feel I, I, I'm getting I'm getting thirsty yeah, here, exactly. David. <laughs> yeah, we need the champagne out. It's, it should be champagne. The whole campaign yeah. was about encouraging people to drink champagne on a more everyday daily basis rather than just for special occasions. So, yeah, it's <laughs> We should be cracking open a bottle of uh, Berkeley Care as we're as we're doing this podcast. We should, we should. But I mean, uh, I think it's it's so important what you said here. I, I, just a couple of things I want to riff on. I think like one of the things, as you said, like the collaboration between branding people, design people, marketing people, mm. all of these things is like what makes this work. And I think. Uh, it's really important. And I mean, that's the reason why this podcast exists is because like the, the overlap between branding and marketing is something I think we're, we're missing out on a lot. Yes. And yes. I think uh, like another, another important point that you said is it's not like it's only you measure the, the assets and then the conclusion is you, you make that bigger, you make that smaller. It's also what you said about like the brand strategy, digging deeper into the brand, into the customer. And it's the overlap between understanding what assets work and then also understanding the brand on a deeper cultural level yes. and putting those two together that really gives you like a, yeah. a solid brand strategy and and yes. Clicquot is a beautiful example of that where it's not just we're scaling our most visual asset up and that's it no there's a story behind it there's a feeling behind yeah. it it's all of those things so that that's really powerful and and maybe let's dig a bit deeper into that amplification because i think that's one of the the biggest uh like challenges again is like how do you make sure that your marketing feels coherent that you leverage all of these assets in a way that it doesn't feel like it's just slapping a, a mm. visual on on each of the the things you do yeah <laughs> and i think you're right you're, <laughs> it's really interesting the way you describe that because i think what you're highlighting there is going from a sort of superficial level of understanding about, you know, distinctive brand assets, which is, oh yeah, we need to sort of make sure we have the same color. You know, it's a bit the, the matching luggage people sometimes call that, you know, we need all our marketing needs to look like matching mm -hmm. luggage, you know, with the same color and we've got to use the same typeface. And it's a little bit the domain of the, uh, I was talking to a client this morning uh, about a project is uh, the, the brand police, you know, the brand police uh, mm -hmm. is to police the use of the correct uh, assets. And in fact, going from brand police to brand leadership, you know, and, and leading power of the brand can be a real catalyst uh, for growth and understanding it in a much, like you said, in a much deeper, fuller, more complete, more holistic way, I think. And I really like the way you talk there about uh, also understanding culture. So um, one of my favorite projects I was, I worked on the last few years, uh, branding project was with uh, BN, which is this uh, French uh, biscuits uh, brand uh, for the Goutier. Um And it has this fantastic, yeah. you know, the best, it has the best form of distinctiveness, which is to, uh, to actually bake, uh, bake the brand into the product. So you can see there like the red mini BN, for example, with the smiley, with the smiley face. Uh, now, what was really interesting, we did that project about three years ago, is when we, when we looked culturally at what was happening in the world of parenting and kids, uh, it was quite shocking in that you had, um, you had this phenomenon 
Uh, <laughs> you're getting all sorts of stuff there. Funny ads. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if you put in actually, if you put in bn, uh, if you put in bn uh, goûte au sourire, which is taste the smile in French, you put in, you might get some more recent uh, goûte au sourire. Yeah, put that in. See what you get. Yeah. So that's a little bit more. If you look at some of the stuff, so. So I think what we what we yeah. found is that the, there was this huge issue uh, of actual kids um, burning out, you know, child burnout, kids being incredibly stressed. If you think about, I mean, it's and it's not getting any, any better, right? You think about what they're watching on the TV and the news, you know, COVID, uh, you know, the war in Ukraine. I mean, all this stuff going on. So actually, culturally, the need to actually have little things that make people smile is like a really a massive, you know, need in culture. Um, and so actually going back to the, the roots of the brand and the smiley, the smiley face biscuit and turning that into, that became the, the brand's, uh, idea and rallying call, you know, goûte au sourire, goûte au sourire, which literally means taste the smile. So the idea being that every little biscuit you buy, you know, you're actually tasting the smile and getting that little moment, a little uplift, you know, um, and something as simple, you can see, if you look in the right hand window. You can see actually integrating the smile into the visual identity. So you've got a little smile now in the mm. BN, whereas you look at the one below with the yellow bottom, it didn't have the smile, you know, actually integrated into it. So that was the old one. And then you've now actually got, um, you've now actually got the smile is actually integrated into the, uh, into the visual identity. Uh, so you see the new one there on that window where you've got Gute au Surya. You can see there the logo actually now integrates the little smile into the logo. It's in the brand's rallying call. So it's sort of reason for being. Um, um, and it's, uh, in the communication, you know, so it's activated in the, in the communication, the story of the, of the communication is about a little boy, you know, who's, uh, trying to play judo and he's not doing very well. And his dad, you know, picks him up and they share a, a, a BN moment and, you know, it's uplifting, uh, it's happy. So I think that's the, you, you, you see then how you can really, uh, unlock you know, which goes back right to the beginning and the, the sort of topic of the research paper, you know, how to fully harness the potential for growth of these assets. They're not just, you know, a uh, bit, of, bit of slogan and a bit of color. They're, they're actually really vitally important uh, assets that you can harness to drive not only uh, recognition and distinctiveness, but also as potentially ways of unlocking uh, meaning, you know, both functional meaning and, and emotional meaning, and even like you've said, you know, tapping into culture. So uh, yeah, it, 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 it's a transformative way of looking at the potential of the, but you can't do that if you haven't, as we, if we go back as well, you know, only one third of companies have a process for strategically managing their assets. So there's only a third of people who are actually thinking about it in the way that we're discussing it today. You know, two thirds of people agree they're important, but have no process for actually managing them. And that's why you get the problems we talked about. That's why you get the subjectivity, the chopping and changing, lack of amplification, because people don't have that, uh, that you know, that proper, that, that approach, that strategic approach to, to managing and amplifying the assets. Yeah. I mean, I, 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 I really love it. And obviously it's uh, something I'm, I'm passionate about. I, I think it's uh, such an interesting overlap between like some sort of science, uh, mm. design, creativity, research strategy. Like it's 
all in one i think it's what what makes like the 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 best brands stand out um and like one of the things that uh, is also interesting to me is like you see like the even the bn example you gave it's like in in some way it's like finding the assets that like work well and stripping away all the rest and and like amplifying those visually but also in the communications and sometimes it's about creating totally new assets and, yes. and like it's it's not always easy to to know when to do what and like one of the things that that for example i'm i'm also really curious about is not just visual assets but um things like sonic assets or like um like it's a visual assets but mascots characters is something that like we've seen basically disappear for a long time but i think is yeah. a big opportunity for brands to to look into like just for for geeking on mascots sake what's your take on them <laughs> yeah no you 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 do your weekly experimenting that you with uh with uh with uh, ai yeah yeah. Uh, yeah i mean gosh they're, they're you know incredibly uh incredibly valuable and i it was another bit of uh, ipsos research so i wrote a branching blog about that um that looked at these different assets and how commonly how effective they are how effective they are and then how often they're actually used. Um, and in particular, what I was fascinated by was the, was the, the contrast between characters or mascots, as you call them, and celebrities. So they were both as, uh, the effectiveness was similar, uh, but the usage was people were tending to use, I think tending to use celebrities probably more often than uh, characters. Uh, there you go. Uh, so you look at the uh, the horizontal axis is how often they were used um, and the vertical axis is effectiveness. So you can see their celebs and characters are both relatively low, but you can see that characters mm -hmm. were way more effective than uh, than celebrities. And, and, the, and the, you know, because a character like the M&M people, for example, uh, you know, is or the bird's eye, Captain Bird's Eye is the other one that I've used, uh, Captain Bird's Eye, uh, Bird's Eye, um, sort of frozen uh, fish fingers, uh, because they, I think someone, I can't, remember, I can't remember who wrote it in a blog, they said that they work 24 seven, three, six, five for you, you know, <laughs> they don't need a, they don't, they don't request a, a higher salary each year. Uh, they don't renegotiate the contracts and they can't go and crash their car and, you know, crash their car into a lamppost when they're drunk or on drugs, you know, uh, which is the problem with celebrities <laughs> can do dodgy, dodgy stuff. So they, they have a huge number of advantages. I think you, I think you may have talked about it in your, um, your writing, uh, that can maybe there's a bit of snobbism, you know, do we really want to have a character, you know, as opposed to doing a deal with, you know, a famous celebrity where we can go and hang out with a celebrity and, you know, sponsor their tour it, it feels very glamorous and very aspirational and it can be highly effective you know i mean george clooney and nespresso yeah. you know long-term partnership very effective um but there are other examples uh when we did the we did our own sort of asset tracking study on ice cream um and at the time it was uh magnum had invested a huge amount of money in benico del torre you know the the, the, the film star mm -hmm. Um, and he was way more attributed to haagen than he was to Magnum. Um, so, was, you know, you're spending <laughs> a lot of money uh, and not necessarily getting that uh, identification. Yeah, so he he was way more, uh, when we did the actual tracking, 
uh, he was not attributed to Magnum, he was attributed to Hagendas. So you spent a whole load of cash, you made a whole fancy commercial. Um, whereas uh, if you've got, uh, yeah. So he wasn't even doing advertising for Hagendas. It's just that people yeah, just thought that. That they thought he was Hagendas' <laughs> person. You know? Whereas if you've got a, like you say, if you've got a mascot, uh, you know that, uh, or a character, uh, then it's it's created for you. So it's completely distinctive. You own it. Uh, you know, you've not got the risk of them going and uh, going and you know jumping ship to another brand or. Often what you find is you've got the same uh, celebrity endorsing multiple categories of products. So that makes it very hard yeah. for you to have the ownership. Um, so I think, as you've said, uh, that the, the concept, so uh, character slash mascot. And then um, I've actually got a call tomorrow uh, with a Sonic branding agency that you've touched on, which I think is the other you know, the other fascinating uh, one that seems to be underutilized, but highly is the most effective, least utilized um, asset. Hmm. Uh, so, uh, but, you know, pe people in the UK who know, you know, just one Cornetto, give it to me, which was revitalized by Inlever, you know, after 30 years, I think. Uh, you've obviously got, you know, the McDonald's, you've got the Intel Chime. So one of the most effective forms of, of a brand asset and yet one that is uh relatively under underutilized so and that's that's the other thing i think if you are in the process of creation you know if you haven't got distinctive assets we talked about the cross-agency collaboration we talked about really drilling into your brand and your consumer and culture and then the third one is is having in mind some of those asset types which are less commonly used you know so and also ones that you can yeah. really uh you've got the ability to have them as replicable because that's what we're always looking for is replicable assets you know and a, the challenge with a celebrity is that they can have a a good immediate impact but they're not always replicable because you can't always renegotiate the you know renegotiate the contract you can't necessarily own them so replica replicable scalable properties like sonic branding or mascots symbols you know have a lot of uh, advantages yeah Love that. I mean, I'd love to keep uh, digging deeper into this topic with you, but I think it was already uh, like a great overview for, for the people listening. Uh, I think those those three elements of to create, uh, to measure and to amplify are, are a great way to start looking at this more strategically. So I want to thank you to uh, come on the podcast, David. It was, oh, it was a, pleasure a pleasure to finally talk to you. Thank you very much. Next time we just need to Thanks do a, a, a glass of champagne or a beer. Be even better. Ah, that's the <laughs> one. <laughs> Thanks. <laughs> Thanks for watching the video. As always, if you like it, subscribe to the video here on YouTube or wherever you're listening on the podcast. And if you want to learn more about brand strategy, visit branding.courses. See you in the next one.